Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Douglas Campbell. He's professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School. He's written numerous books. His most recent one, Paul, an Apostle's Journey, is a short and spirited book that introduces readers to the Apostle Paul, whom he studied in depth over his scholarly career. In this book, you can enter with Campbell into Paul's world, relive the story of Paul's action-packed ministry, and follow the development of Paul's thought throughout both his physical and his spiritual travels. It's a really great book. We had a really great conversation about the book and about studying the Bible and spirituality and why it matters to everyday life. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I give you Douglas Campbell. Douglas, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. You've written this great book, Paul and Apostle's Journey, which is a, a wonderful introduction to the Apostle Paul for somebody that's familiar with the Bible or not. I mean, I think it, it, it's mm, written mm. at... It, 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 level where, you know, there's multiple entry points. But before I, we talk about that, I just wanted to ask you as a New Zealander, how representative is Flight of the Concords for most Americans? Because most Americans oh. don't have a ton of New Zealand knowledge. Yeah. We know I the know. Lord of the Rings. Are there yeah. hobbits in New Zealand? No, but there are Concords. Right. Yeah, those, right. That is the soil from which we spring. <laughs> they, are, <laughs> they are a beautiful presentation of droll New Zealand humor. <laughs> And you kind of need me to watch that show again because I will explain all the jokes that you missed. I bet. I mean, I bet. I mean, that's it is interesting because I think Americans lump New Zealand and Australia together, and they're they're yes. There's an episode about that, Scott. I bet. I haven't. I've, I've only seen a few episodes of the show, but it's it's. Uh, oh, yeah. New Zealand's pretty far from Australia too. When you look at a map, which I yeah. think most Americans don't know, three and a half hour flight. Yeah. That's pretty. That's pretty big. Well, so are yeah, you? Are you? Water. Are you <laughs> flying over the water? Yeah. So it's like uh, it's like an ocean from here to mm, the Rockies. Are you New Zealand's preeminent New Testament scholar? <laughs> Would you say? I mean, is there anybody else out there that is even close to oh, the yeah. title? Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. All right. Um, there was a uh, the Lady Margaret Chair of Divinity and New Testament at Cambridge. Prior to the last one was uh, a Kiwi. His name was Graham Stanton. Oh, I didn't know Graham Stanton was a Kiwi. Okay, yeah. there you go. Well, yeah. that's a pretty there, there good... are a great friend of my doctoral supervisors, Murray Harris, uh, in the conservative scene, um, was a Kiwi. Um, no, they're out there. We, we, we scatter and then hide our identities. Unlike um, Australians who, who put their identities well, there you go. out there. Right? Yeah, that's right. Australians are like Texans. <laughs> New Zealanders are more like people from Maine. <laughs> so, so do they shop at LL Bean? That's the question. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> no, you don't. Not, not that I, stuff. Our, our listeners can't see, but you look much more stylish than LL Bean. You're, you're, you're very stylish. Well, I have a very good style consultant. Well, this is important. Yeah, I'm, I'm married to her. Well, that's yeah. that's even better. I don't step out the door unless I've been vetted. <laughs> and I tell you, my career has gone brilliantly since I actually started doing what she said. I, I love it. I love it. So you say in the intro to the book, uh, you say that the Apostle Paul is the most influential political philosopher in the USA today, and arguably in the rest of the world as well. Yeah. And that this surely makes him one of the most important figures in human history. It's interesting, though, if you look in popular culture, 
there's a lot about Jesus. Yeah. You know, the, the, if people are making late night jokes about Christianity or doing sketches or, if, it, you know, they're, or doing like, you know, comics, you know, satirical comics or Jesus plays prominently. Mm, mm. Paul almost never. Yeah. Why do you think mm. that's the case? Oh, well, there was a hit job really done on Paul intellectually back in the 1800s when you were getting um, atheist intellectuals were getting on a roll. And I mean, it goes back to even around the time of the French and the American Revolution. French Revolution was very secular and they wanted to attack the church. And who could blame them? The church was doing horrific things at the time. And they worked out very quickly that they couldn't really attack Jesus. He was unattackable. Um, you just couldn't find somewhere that you could get purchased. So they went after Paul and they could find stuff that he wrote that was kind of bad tempered and cranky. Um, so they portrayed him as an arch conservative. And I think he's gone into, for a lot of more progressive and liberal people, Paul has gone into the dustbin or onto the bookshelf where you also put things like, I don't know, Fox News and Jerry Falwell. <laughs> They're all on the same bookshelf. So if you're someone that browses that bookshelf, you'll have heard of Paul. But if you're not someone who wants to hang out there, you're not going to, to read Paul. You're going to think he's part of the problem, part of, he's kind of the enemy. When he isn't, he's, a, he's actually a deeply radical progressive figure. I mean, this guy was a revolutionary. He had a lot of trouble in his life. He had a lot of opposition, but it was from the conservatives. They wanted to kill him. Yeah. I mean, cause it's, it, it is, I mean, I, you know, I mean, canonically it is people, Christians who hold that the Bible is an inspired text, you know, and the whole thing fits together. I mean, have no interest in playing Jesus off Paul, but, but if you, if you were thinking that way, it's, it's the disciples of the of the historical Jesus that walked around with him that are the conservatives on certain issues, right? And Paul yeah. is the one that's yeah. trying to push them and, and, and sort of push the logic of the right. ministry and life right. of Jesus into this kind of universalizing perspective. Yeah, yeah. well, he, yeah, absolutely. They were, um, and that was a problem for him because he was an outsider. I mean, he wasn't just an outsider. He wasn't just somebody that hadn't really met and hung around with Jesus while he was walking around in Galilee. Uh, he was someone who tried to kill the Christians when they first started getting organized. They were really messianic Jews at the time. Paul was part of a death squad uh, going after them. So his credibility ratings were very, very low well, you, when you, he joined the movement. You mentioned the death squad thing in the book. And as I was reading it in the beginning of the book, I was thinking, I don't know that I ever thought this before. I mean, I, 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 you know yeah. this part of the murderous, you know, threatening yeah. saw of yeah. Tarzan. But I was thinking, where does he get the death squad? I mean, do you go in the town square, people looking for day work? Like, hey, I could pay X number of shekels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do, where do you recruit the death squads in the ancient world? Like, where do, are these roaming well, around, look at brigands <clears throat> looking for a leader? Where do you get that? No, no. I mean, um, it's more a kind of Al-Qaeda thing. Uh, you've got a group of very, very devout very angry, very aggressive young men. And they're kind of programmed to look for targets. And so they find one and uh, off they go. You also note something about your methodology, which I think is really, really interesting, that you say a lot of studies of the Apostle Paul's life look and try to understand his background first. And then in light of sort of historical reconstruction of his background, which some of which is hypothetical, of course, to any degree, but and, and some of which yeah. you have some details yeah. for. And then they try to understand the conversion. You say, I want to work 
the other way. I want to look at the conversion mm. and see what happened and then understand his backstory, almost like the show Lost or something, right? <laughs> like you're looking at the yeah. backstory in light of the present. Right. So, so right. why do you think that's an important decision methodologically to get to know this towering figure, the Apostle Paul? Well, there's a couple of reasons, really, but the most important is is because of what he tells us himself. And you've got to make a judgment right at this moment whether you're going to give Paul the benefit of the doubt and say he's involved with God and God's involved with his life and, and this God is bound up with Jesus, or whether you just don't believe that, you don't think that's possible, in which case to understand him, you've got to understand what came before him. But if you're a Christian, you have this kind of what I call an open view of history in which there's stuff happening internal to history that's making things happen, and there's stuff happening external to history, which is the way that God is acting upon it. And Paul says that he was acted upon, that God literally smashed into his world, which, as we just were saying, was radically misdirected, <laughs> broke into that world, gripped him and said, look, this guy that you're persecuting and his followers, that's actually all about me. Total about face. I've got a job for you to do. Here we go. And that reoriented everything that he'd been going through before. He I kind of compare him here to someone, if you'll pardon the analogy, but I think it has application. He's a little bit like a drug addict who's now in rehab and his mind is clarifying. And the great thing that is clarifying it is this this kind of rehab through Jesus. And he looks back and sees how he really had been distorting things. And this, this, is, this is the sinful mind. This is a mind that he learns not to trust, that we're all sort of in the grip of. And so – Getting hold of the sequence where God grabs you and then you understand things better, including your own past, that, that's critical to who he is. It's critical to his gospel um, for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, so I, I put that right up front. You, you've picked on a very important point. Yeah, and you actually say that you hold that up, too, as normative for Christians, right, that this is something we could learn from the Apostle Paul, that we all have this recovery yep. story where mm -hmm. when we come into a connection, if you're a Christian, you come into connection with God through Christ and his spirit, that that, that becomes the, the orienting point around your story, right? Yeah. And everything becomes yep. reinterpreted around that. Yep, yep, absolutely. When God breaks into your life definitively um, through Christ, what you, what you realize pretty quickly is, is you realize along with Christians through all the ages, through space and time, that Jesus is where God is located for you. This is definitive. This is really God, present in a way that God is not present anywhere else, fully human, fully divine. And so this is where we learn what God is like. And that just obviously has to become the thing uh, whereby we measure all out of the truths um, that orients all our actions, that tells us what our story is really about. That becomes the center of everything for us. And this is what Paul is trying to tell us. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the people who read him kind of mess this up a bit. They uh, overemphasize and slightly misunderstand, I would suggest, some of his passages, particularly in Romans. And they tend to stick something in front of this and say, oh, you know, we've got to prepare everybody to become a Christian. Let's go on an intellectual journey while you're a non-Christian, make some pretty important decisions, and then we'll try and get you converted, and then the rest will kind of follow. This is exactly what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that. He's saying wherever you are, whatever journey you're on, whatever intellectual journey you're on, God will break into that 
gently if necessary, powerfully, dramatically, quietly, it doesn't matter, but God will relate to you and break into your life and ask you to respond to Jesus. And that then becomes the starting point for every, everything else. Now, you are a professional religious scholar. You, 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 in fact, you say that you were the, the birth of this book was being asked to give a talk at the Society of Biblical Literature or something in San Diego, was it? And, and somebody asked you to kind of give a popular level. Yeah, overview. that's right. No, it was, it was much less uh, auspicious than that. I was in a bar with someone. Oh, okay. I thought, okay, there you go. All right. I like that. That's a book guy, a book guy. And he goes, uh, Michael Thompson at Erdman's, who's a, a very dear friend. And I think a very wise person. And he said, your problem is that, uh, you've got this really interesting reading of Paul. It's very liberating. It's very exciting, but it's located in very academic and inaccessible books. He said, what you need to do is write a book that most other folks can actually understand. And I the, said, if the first book anyone yeah. ever gave me of yours was a th- 1100 pages i think 13 1300 pages. yeah those yeah. last 200 pages there's a lot of pain in there don't, don't <laughs> drop them out <laughs> yeah i mean so your insistence that you, you you we can't like we can't sort of make the we can't psychologize or deconstruct this reality of god and christ breaking in yeah yeah how does that go over when you're at academic meetings like the Society of <laughs> Biblical Literature? Because, I mean, I, I feel like I, I've uh, I've encountered scholars from all across the ideological spectrum, conservative and liberal, in biblical studies. That the one thing they seem to agree on is for professional purposes, we'll have the conversation with atheistic presuppositions, right? Like, Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, that's, a, that's an entirely accurate observation. There's sort of a tacit agreement that we'll figure things out, that our understanding of causality and agency will just bracket out God for a while so that we can all get along. Um, I have to tell you that that irritates me profoundly, and I won't do it. I'm too old to care, and nobody can hurt me now anyway. I'm a professor at Duke, so screw you. Um, so I, I don't do that. I present my papers and God is, for all intents and purposes, quite real for that. And I'm not going to apologize for that. If you want to have a conversation about why I think that's defensible, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to have that conversation. And indeed, I'm very interested to do that. I'm, I'm going to spend a certain amount of time in the book after this as well, the big guy that's coming out. This is the, the next 1,300-pager, making exactly this point. Um, if you bracket God out, you're actually fundamentally falsifying what Paul is saying almost all of the time. So you're kind of making him into someone who's fundamentally insane. Um, and I don't think he's insane. I think he's right. So to do that, yeah, I, I stand within the confession of the church. I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, and I'm not going to move. And isn't it weird like that for people that kind of have that sort of methodological, say, skeptical or atheist background, but then there wouldn't be a discipline, right? I mean, it makes sense. You could study Jeremiah or Thessalonians or Deuteronomy, but the only reason you study them in relationship is a theological assertion, right? That there's this is all holy scripture. Right. So, so, so even the discipline itself depends on a theological yep. judgment that then correlates From the church. All, all, the, yeah. all the books, right? Yeah, that's right. A canonical, canonical research, i.e. the reason that you would study the Bible— doesn't really make a lot of sense unless the church was right to gather these disparate writings together and say that Christians and should read them. Uh, that's exactly right. God, God speaks through these particular books and not others. So the first thing that happens when you go the historical critical route is you go and read a whole bunch of other stuff that's not in the Bible, and you kind of break it apart. 
fragmented historically. Uh, so someone like me, I end up studying Paul in relation to all the sources from his day, Greek sources, Roman sources, things in Latin, things in Greek, Jewish sources, and then don't necessarily read them against the book of Jeremiah or the book of Isaiah, except as perhaps he read them. So you're exactly right. Yeah, historical critical work breaks up the book that the church has. Now, I think there's value in it. I don't dismiss it. I think it's. I think Christians are very bad at listening to other people. And I think history is listening to other people um, who are so quiet now because they're dead. <laughs> so you really have to be accommodating and gentle to hear what they're trying to tell you. So I think it's a good discipline. But in the end of the day, this is not the answer. This is a supplement or a complement to the truth which is something that God gifts us with. And by gifting it to us, makes everybody who's scholarly and everybody who's unscholarly on the same level. I don't have any advantage of your average Christian in the street. Perhaps I have disadvantages because I might think I'm learned, and that doesn't really help me when it comes to the stuff that really matters. You talk about this radical breaking in in Paul's conversion, that God shows up and reorders his own story. Did you have an experience like that in your own life? Uh, well, listen, I didn't fall to the ground blinded for three days and three nights, but, um, yes, I, I would say I was a convert. Um, it wasn't quite as dramatic, but it was dramatic enough. And yes. What, what, can you say, what, how, how was it dramatic? I mean, what was the circumstances? Like what? Well, it's embarrassing, really. I'm not sure I should tell you, Scott, because um, I, I sort of became a Christian by act. It was unintentional. I was, uh. I was uh, at a rock concert questing for the meaning of life, which I, I thought might have something to do with drugs, but I couldn't find any. I was kind of useless. And What, ba- what a- band was it? Do you remember? Oh, this is a rock festival in New Zealand. You wouldn't know any of them. They're high-quality New Zealand bands. And um, so we're at a massive rock festival, and there's like a spiritual mile, and I'm checking out all the spiritual stuff, the Buddhists, the, Hind- the Hari Christians. We always used to go to their tent because you got a free lunch. Um, and there's this massive Pentecostal tent with this like really conservative Pentecostal dude up the front. He's a faith healer and he's shouting and carrying on. And I really was looking for something. And I was up the back of the tent and he goes, would anyone like to come up the front to pray? And, you know, I'm a stupid secular type New Zealander. I'm like, well, I'm a good person. I'm a Christian. I pray. And then I found my legs carrying me up the front of this tent like I was on a motorized wheelchair. I thought, well, this is a little weird. But anyway, I'm shooting up the front. There's hundreds of people there. And we're lined up the front. And it, he, he comes up. His name is Bill Sabretsky. God bless him. R.I.P. And he goes, has anybody not been up the front before? So I put my hand up. And he goes, praise the Lord. The net goes out and the fishes are gathered in. And I thought, shit, what have I done? <laughs> What have I done? And he comes up to me and he says, have you come to give your life to Jesus? And I go, yeah, okay. <laughs> he goes, will you pray the sinner's prayer with me? I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, he starts. Right, he, says, that, you must believe he, he could have sold you. Line. He could have sold you a car there. We could take oh, the totally, extended yeah. warranty. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll no, that's right. sign yeah, me no, up. There was, there was no backing out. There was no backing out. I'm up the front. I'm, I'm going to pray the sinner's prayer, whatever that is tells me to believe in the Virgin Mary. I'm like, I don't believe that. Anyway, I pray the sinner's prayer. I get to the end of the sinner's prayer, and something very deep down inside of me just went click. And I thought, I have found what I'm looking for. And that was it. That was the turning point. <laughs> That's when it happened. <laughs> and at what point did Paul become important for you in your own story of God's ah, unfolding work in your life? Yes. 
Excellent question. Uh, well, I went off, went back to university. My life didn't change overnight, but within six months, every single aspect of it had changed. New friends. I lived in a new place. I went to church. I had a new hobby. I had a new major. What was your old major? Uh, uh, well, I'd been in medical school, and, and that's an undergrad thing in New Zealand, and I just hated it. Hated it. I was bored out of my brain. No offense to doctors. Uh, probably because I was narcissistic and self-involved and I wanted to talk about myself. So I ended up in political theory and religious studies. I wanted to read Plato and Aristotle and talk about the meaning of life. So I ended up doing political studies and religious studies. And then I went on to do doctoral work in Canada. And someone told me before I went, you must study with Richard Longnecker at Wycliffe. I went, I was at Toronto and he's a you know, very, very famous, wonderful man, very warm very powerful, very compelling, horrendously bad and disorganized speaker that you just nevertheless were gripped by every word uh, that he said. And I went to his Romans course and like, this happened to many people. I thought, yes, I want to be this guy. I want to study this guy and I want to study this letter. I often wonder whether that was a really smart decision, but I made it. <laughs> I switched in my doctorate to Paul, started studying Romans, did my doctorate on Romans. Here I am. And Romans, right, is is – in some sense, well, in the history of the church, I mean, all, all kinds of influence, you know, all Huge. kinds of people. And it, but today, in contemporary scholarship, it's kind of a battleground, right? The Book oh, yeah. of Romans. I mean, so if you had to map out the ter the terrain, right? Like for yeah. you know, like how many major camps are there, and and, and why are you better than them? <laughs> why are you right? Excellent question. Okay, so Romans is written in four blocks. There's like the justification by faith block, one to four, chapters one to four. And then there's five to eight is um, talking about God loves you and you get baptized and transformed. That's what it, what you might call the participatory block. Um, then there's the Israel block. What do we do with Israel? What do we do with the patriarchs? History, nine through 11. And then 12 through 14 is, okay, so what, what are we actually going to do in the church? How do we live with one another? How do we celebrate communion? How do we eat together? And the camps divide in terms of whether they plant their flag and say, this is the main block. So you got your good old-fashioned evangelicals, Lutherans, Protestants, block one is where the action is. Block two is where the participatory um, Albert Schweitzer type apocalyptic scholars plant their flag. This is the action, getting transformed, dying and rising with Christ. Block three is the salvation historical crowd. It's all about a story that you tell about the Bible that stretches right back to the patriarchs and stretches through the history of Israel. You know who I'm talking about. Block three. Block four, practicalities, the church, practices. doesn't really matter what Paul says about doctrine and stuff. It's what you do on the ground that counts. So that's kind of the sociological crowd. And those are the four main camps in Pauline scholarship, except – the new perspective is fighting with the old perspective of how to read block one. And the old perspective, um, the new perspective, of course, you're telling like people like E.P. Sanders and people that actually think in light of sort of post-Holocaust concerns that, hey, we, we don't want to sort of this sort of old school Lutheran Protestant reading where, where Jesus looks like Martin Luther and the Pharisees look like legalistic medieval Catholics. That can be kind of bad for uh, understanding the text and bad for Christian Jewish relations. And, yeah. and so they kind of are trying to re-envision things around justification and, and things like that. That's that's the new perspective on Judaism. And then people, scholars, Paul scholars handle that in different ways. And there's a little camp called the new perspective on Paul, which is kind of a much more specific operation. And they say the way to deal with all those issues that you've just mentioned 
uh, is to reread works of law and read them not as works whereby we seek to justify ourselves before God, uh, but as works that create and establish an ethnic boundary between Jews and non-Jews that make us feel superior. So that's like a Jimmy Dunn, Tom Wright reading. Now, I, I happen to think that in view of the new perspective on Judaism, neither the old perspective nor the new perspective on Paul uh, have any future. So the future is not in the old reading or the newish reading, which is really just the old reading and drag of, of chapters one through four. The future is in Romans five through eight. The greatest chapter that Paul ever wrote in Romans is chapter eight, where the spirit is transforming you and pulling you through into the resurrected situation where you're going to inherit um, the future. You're already tasting it. Uh, God the Father as it works. We've got the Son. It's Trinitarian. It's sacramental. It's dynamic. It's transformative. This is the heart of Paul's gospel. You have so a great I'm, analogy for this in your book where you're talking about this sort of, you know, the already not yetness of, 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 of God come near in Christ and how basically, you know, it, it, people, you know, you say your students ask, but hey, why don't we feel totally transformed? Right. What's going, and you say right. you, what you do is you play some death metal, right? What, what do you, what do you, yeah. What, yeah. what's the band I forget you play? Um, Zal. Yeah, you play Zal. And then. Animal Corpse. Yeah, so <laughs> you're, like that. you're playing this death metal. It sounds awful, and then you yeah. you pull your phone out and you start playing some Beethoven. And, and right. as you change to make the Beethoven louder and the Zao quieter, or sometimes the Zao's louder. But both music, both the melodious, beautiful Beethoven and the sort of shrill, kind of destructive Zao, both inhabit every space of the room. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So we, sometimes we've just got that music turned up too loud, and God's music is present. It really is everywhere. But but we're just not listening to it. We've got to turn the volume up on the divine music and turn down the volume on the music of the world. And then we'll become more and more aware that God is at work all around us all the time. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of a credibility issue here that's very, very significant. Um, Paul really does want – Paul really believes that you are already being transformed by Christ and you're already – living out of kind of a resurrected mind. And you're in touch with a God who loves you so deeply you can't even understand the dimensions on this love. That's This is true. And immediately, you know, modern people are skeptical. They're like, I oh, will prove this. I can't see it. And Paul says you can't see it, but you do need to know it. And at that moment, I want to take Paul really seriously and say press into the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is at work, and that's really where Paul expects you to get this conviction from. And adding just a little bit to that, the Holy Spirit is at work dramatically all over the world, but not everywhere in equally dramatic measures the Holy Spirit wills, often in hidden corners, often with groups that are needy, that are somewhat marginalized, that are struggling. So my recommendation is if you've got a problem with the divine reality, get your butt into the place where the Spirit is at work. Don't sit around and wait for God to come to you, but get yourself out where the Spirit is blowing and working amongst those people, and you will receive ample confirmation of the reality of God and Probably for me, that experience has happened most profoundly in uh, prison settings when you're worshiping. Uh, usually for me, it's worshiping with groups of men who are incarcerated, often very ill. Uh, the presence of God in those worship gatherings is something you can taste. 
You actually write about that in the book. You talk about prisons and how they can be really misunderstood and how Paul spent a lot of his life in, yeah. in, in incarcerated and yes. and how that shaped his, his own ministry, right? Absolutely, yeah. Th- this guy writes almost half his stuff from in prison. Um, that's got to tell us something. Um, the first thing it tells us is good things are happening in prison and uh, God is at work there. The second thing it tells us is God expects his Christian leaders to end up in prison. So if you're not the sort of Christian leader that's running into kind of vulnerability on that front, uh, I want to ask you why. Um, Because Paul was there all the time. Um, Are they rounding up lots of the faculty at Duke Divinity School? (laughs) The police? How many of them been in prison? Who's who's doing time there? Harawas, no? Uh. Yeah, we're working on it. Well, I think he's definitely vulnerable. That's right. I just became an American citizen because I was terrified that I was going to end up in prison. But as a resident alien, I just get deported. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we're making America great again here. That's uh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of people in prison now, and and a lot of them just shouldn't be there. I mean, it's very expensive, and it's it's just basically nasty. So uh, yeah, my my point is that the spirit is at work in these prisons, and um, God is doing good things there. uh, So get involved. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Stephen Lipless, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, and Barry Stewart. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So you said the Romans 8 is the best chapter. And right before that is Romans 7. And where Paul says, you know, oh, this is this dilemma that yeah. I have that, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do. Yeah. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Wretched man that I am. No, it's no, it's it. Now that to me, right. Mm. A lot of Christians I know, and a lot through history says, "Yeah, that's pretty much how it is." You know, the the the, the Christian life. It's like the two music musical mm, tunes playing, mm, right? Mm, now mm. you're well, a new, you're a new te- you're a New Testament scholar, and people go into biblical studies right to tell people that text does not mean what you think it means. <laughs> so so to explain, yeah, how, what is your take on that? Like, is it is this Paul's description of his own spiritual journey? Is he talking about what life was like? Before he meets Jesus and is and has this infusion of the Spirit, I mean, right. how do how do you right. how do you read that text? 
Um, it's, a, it's a little bit of both because I think what he's describing is life in the flesh, a life living with that mind in that body that hasn't been resurrected. So you're actually living in the grip of the kind of music of the world. It's, it's, it's Zao, it's cannibal corpse. It's got a grip on you and you're living there and you're highly conflicted. Uh, so what he wants you to do is constantly take the step into and stay in the music of heaven where the Bach or the Beethoven is playing. And that that's a realm that's characterized by peace. So from that position, from that vantage point of peace, Paul looks back on that other existence and says, holy crap, it's miserable. It's conflicted. It's sinful. It can't do the right all the time consistently. It's headed for death. It's corrupt. There's a, there's a major problem here, and this is the problem that Jesus has solved. But this is, the, this is the view backwards that we were talking about. We were talking about how the drug addict has a clarifying mind. And looks back and goes, I had no idea how damn miserable I was at the time. I couldn't articulate that. I denied it. Uh, and yet, look at my life. It was a hell of a mess. My, my relationship's broken. Uh, thieving, stealing, lying. Uh, I was an alcoholic. I was a substance abuser and, and very conflicted. Now, unfortunately, even though that reality has been executed, it's been buried, it's what I call the, the zombie moment. Christians insist on resurrecting that reality from the dead and stepping back into it all the time. It's like an open doorway uh, into another room. And Paul is saying, don't step through that doorway. Stay where you are. Stay in the room where the music of heaven is playing by itself. Don't go back into that other room. Um, so you see how it kind of covers both both the past and the present? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because you have a chapter in the book that's outstanding, I thought. On, well, I mean, I like the whole book. But, this, but one of the things you talk about, the unconditionality of God's love. And, right. how, and, and you know, it's almost like the, the, what we know about developmental psychology is like a secular parable of the kingdom right here that we, we know yeah. if you get acceptance as a gift from zero to two, yes. things generally will go a lot better for you than if from zero to yes. two you get the sense that yes. it's a reward. Yes. So, yes. and it sounds yeah. like you're reading, it sounds to me a lot like, you know, there's kind of a Luther 16th century renaissance in, in certain mm. parts of the American church today, this kind of law gospel hermeneutic mm. kind of thing. And, mm. and, 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 and it, it deals a lot with the unconditionality mm. of, of, God's love, right? This is the great Luther's great insight, right? That you can't. But just that it isn't. <laughs> but that you have to be the beloved before you can love, like that you have to know this unconditional yeah. belovedness. But it sounds like what you're saying is is that the, the unconditionality in Luther, yes, but the but is there something in Luther that allow, that that invites us to keep stepping back into the room with the Zao playing or something? Is that the problem? Is that yes. your problem with this sort of Lutheran reading of of, of the Pauline message? Um. That's very perceptive. Um, the problem with Luther is, I think he's, I think he's brilliant, but I think he's inconsistent, and I think he's, on the one hand, he understands the unconditionality of God's love for us, but on the other hand, he runs a, a system that's kind of conditional and contractual, in which uh, he uses the hammer of the law to break down your pride so that you'll make a decision for Christ and become a Christian and get saved, and if you run that model. Here's the problem. You start off your journey in the room where Zao is playing, where the flesh is tearing at you. And it's up to you to make the right decision to step through into the other room. And you've got to keep making that decision. It's basically down to you. God's going to be nice to you 
as long as you stay in that room. But in the end of the day, if you step back into the other room, if you make a bad choice, God is going to crush you. And if you if you run that story, you kind of ruin what you were just talking about, which is that God loves you first and he puts you in the good room. And then, yeah, we disobey and we step back into the old room, but God will go and reach out to you and find you. Uh, he will He will seek you in the far country and find you wherever you are, put you on his shoulders and carry you back. Now, that's a story in which, as Bart puts it, God's yes precedes and frames the no. I, I was just going to say, it sounds like you, you, you think like Luther needs a little Bart seasoning. Like that, that, yeah, he does <laughs> that, a little bit. Yeah. He, he needs a little bit of Bart kind of consistent making him sort of slightly more consistent and coherent, I would argue. Yeah, like Bart, of course, Bart was a Calvinist, so he, 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 he thinks that Calvin got most of this right. Although if you look at the number of Calvin versus Luther quotes in the church dogmatics. Yes, that's, uh, this is true. But yeah, this but, is true. But Bart, They're up there. But Bart, They're up there at the level. But Bart says, you know, right, that, that the, it sounds like what you're saying is this sort of Bart, Bart's notion that the only sin you proclaim is forgiven sin. So you know sin, you, 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 just like you're saying with Paul, you know, you, you look yes. at the background in light of the conversion, not the yes. other way around. So you yes. look at sin in light of redemption, yes. not yes. not the uh, not the other exactly. way around. Yeah, and that's why Romans 7 is so deep and dark. It's because when we're cradled by God's love and commitment to us, we can look at ourselves as we really are in and of ourselves, and we see a really, really big problem, um, which God is, thanks be to God, thanks be to Jesus Christ, <laughs> we're being saved from. Um, there's a sense in which if we don't have that security with God, we can't be fully honest about the size of the problem that we're facing. I mean, this is a big problem. Um, it, basically, it's the problem of death. And Paul says you can stare death in the face and know that this is not the last word if you're grounded in God's love and in Jesus Christ. So, you know, that's a pretty good place to be. One of the things that's interesting in the book, you, you talk about Paul's kind of missionary stretch. I mean, you spend a lot of time talking about his travels. And you also talk about the yes. way he spreads the faith. And you, you cite these studies that, you know, mm. the LDS church, the Mormon church, spends sends these people on mission, right? And they 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 you know, we many people see them door to door. If they pass me up, I'm kind of offended. I'm like, what? You don't think I could add something to the team? Like I'm not <laughs> I like being recruited. You know, it makes me feel valuable. But you know <laughs> but but you talk about in the book how the, the studies show that most of the Mormon converts don't come from that. What they come right. from is relational connections to the faith. Right. That, that people that exactly. get to know Mormons get to know, oh, these people live a nice lifestyle. Um you know, it's not all just uh, strange underwear and musicals. I mean, this is an interesting group of people, right? And that, and 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 that that and you say, you know, this makes a lot of sense of, of the way Paul and his churches work. That that most hmm. of the the this the entrance into the community came not through you know uh, early Christians going door to door and you know distinctive outfits or something pamphlets, yeah, yeah. But but the, it came through connection, organic connection. Mm -hmm. in relationship. Exactly. Yeah, God is profoundly relational. And it's not one size fits all. It's I want to I want to be your friend and uh that's my motivation for getting to know you and that's what eventually might make you become a Christian in an authentic and lasting way, which means it's not about an intellectual process. I don't have to bludgeon you into submission with a philosophical journey where I'm right about you. And we can't get any further ahead in our conversation until you've accepted that I'm right about you. Uh, this is absolutely not the way that Paul 
talked and converted people. Um, he used to whistle while he worked. He would go into a, a hand worker's shop and get get a job, a really tough, long, dirty, long hours job, and he would talk to these guys and women around him, and eventually they would be like, oh, this sounds really cool. Why don't we make a church? Um, it was very subtle, embedded, context-sensitive uh, relational work. Um, this is this is this is how we should be rolling, and I think probably for a lot of the time it is. We just don't know it. Yeah, you make a point. A great section of the book where you talk about Corinth and rhetoric, and how Paul would have looked to these people in, in ancient state of Corinth who valued their rhetoricians. I was thinking. Yes. I was thinking of that. You ever see the Mel Brooks movie History of the World? Where, where uh, I have not. Where no. Mel Brooks is a philosopher. And they got, uh, he says, I just got a gig to play Caesar's Palace. And you know, <laughs> what a gig for a philosopher, Caesar's Palace. But I mean, this is this kind of thing, right? The rhetoricians yeah. and philosophers. And, and yeah. Paul is quite explicit that, that Jesus didn't look like that. He's yeah. the crucified Messiah. And neither yeah. does he. Like he, he's, yeah. he's, his eyes, his skin, his, you know, he's worked over from the, from the, from the tent making, the, the skin tanning, whatever. Or oh, the floggings. The, yeah. Well, also the floggings. Yeah, yeah, if it's not the skin tanning, it's the flogging. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So the, the, he literally, <laughs> he literally embodies this foolishness yeah. uh, uh, yep. uh, of Christ's kind of image, right? Yep, yep. Um, he's grappling with um, how we can recognize authentic Christian leadership at Corinth, in particular, because cultural evaluations of leadership um, are so misleading, and we tend to view people who have a lot of uh, social capital. As leaders, they, they might have literally material capital, but they also have social capital. They sound good. They look good. I mean, Americans like to elect men to be president who are tall <laughs> and generally elect people who are taller than their opponents. I mean, how absurd. Um, but this is just how we roll. And Paul, of course, doesn't look like anything. And he says, but, you know, authentic Christian leaders don't look like anything because while they're getting alongside people – in these kind of difficult spaces and patiently befriending them and getting right down onto that level, they don't look like anything. They look like nothing. They, they're very vulnerable. And yet it is, it's exactly that faithfulness that shows that fidelity, that steadfastness, that refusal to retaliate, that shows that they're the real deal. Uh, so we have to massively re-educate ourselves uh, into the recognition of authentic Christian leadership as against phony, kind of showy Christian leadership. Yeah, there's I mean, that's a pretty big challenge in this culture. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting worse, yeah. <laughs> actually. It, it really is. And yet it's incredibly important. I mean, a large part of the Bible is devoted to warning us about exactly this problem. Yeah, one of the things that's so interesting about your book, the way you frame this sort of conflict between those who sort of and this debate that you see at the Jerusalem Council, other places where they're trying to figure out yeah. what to make sense, how to make yeah. sense of Gentile inclusion, you know, people that right, are not right. culturally Jewish and yet who've connected with the God of Israel through Jesus. And you, you, you tell an interesting story, but the first off, you say, you point something out that I think is so interesting. You're like, look, for diaspora Jews in the ancient Mediterranean, they're kind of working when other people are partying and, 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 and the Gentiles are, are partying when Jews are working. Like that yeah. they're, and mm -hmm. there's certain, you know, kind of, cultural barriers and things but although you know there was fraternizing but it was very specific yeah. uh, and unique and and yet what happens is like you know the the congress they call it the backbenchers right like the backbenchers in some of these christian <laughs> meetings right 
who are who are maybe more the Gentile oriented people. Uh, clearly, God's spirit is poured out on them, and, yeah. and 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 much of like what you've said in this conversation already that Paul wants to wants to read everything from that spirit outpouring. Yeah. Yeah. Back yeah. and not say, okay, spirit's out for it. First, we got to check off all these boxes here on the front end to make sure the spirit yeah. can be legitimate, right? Right, right. No, no, great point. Um, the Gentile mission is Paul tells, uh, Paul gets told by God to go and convert pagans or Gentiles, go and convert these guys. Uh, but there's not a lot of detail at that point uh, in terms of how to convert them. So he does what any right thinking person would do. And he says, well, you guys all have to become Jews, you've got to become messianic Jews. And what he realizes in the scenario you've just rehearsed, which I think happened in Antioch, is the spirit got out ahead of him, pulled these people in before they'd properly converted to Judaism. And Paul goes, holy moly, this is a theological crisis. God is hanging out with a whole bunch of disgusting people who do a whole bunch of things that I do not approve of and is saying they're okay. Now, that is the basic dynamic at the heart of all Christian mission. There's a group of people that we're frightened of, that we think is off. And God is saying they're okay in certain respects just the way they are. That's a very frightening thing to say to a religious person, but that's the heart of the gospel. Now, you still got to navigate um, that inclusion in such a way that not everything is okay. you got to work out what's okay and what's not okay, and Paul spends a lot of his time doing that. Uh, but he has really good uh, reasons and evidence for the decisions that he makes, and the result is a very diversified, creative, flourishing sort of a church. Um, diversity is at the heart of the whole Christian thing. Uh, and I think we've, I think we've lost that. I, I think we've somewhere we've got confused, you know, we've got this idea that Christians have to be like us, that the first thing I need to do when I convert you is make you like me. Um, I mean, think of America, heck, you know, so polarized. And Paul comes along and goes, there's good in you and there's good in the way you do things that are different from me. That's a fairly revolutionary approach. <laughs> right. It's, it's, you know, it, it, I mean, it's, it's radically anti-tribal, right? Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. And yet, it incorporates the best features of your own tribal identity. It just doesn't say this is it. You don't have to defend this. This doesn't have to be non-negotiable for everyone else. There's room for you in this tent. Being a tribe that's kind of been sanitized and sanctified by Christ alongside all the other tribes who have their own way of doing things. It's have a beautiful you, vision. Have you ever read Andrew Walls? The, I have, yeah. Actually, um, yes, yes. He's a you know, world student of world Christian history in the missionary world, but he says he was a colleague actually. Great. Yeah. Interesting guy. He says that, you know, there's two things at the heart of the gospel. It sounds like this is something like what you're saying. He says that there's the indigenizing principle that says you're accepted just who you are, your culture, everything about you. And then there's the pilgrim principle and, and, and that acceptance also now you're on a journey toward, you know, the Holy city or the Holy, with every tongue tribe yeah. in nature. So the, yeah. and he says, it's not 50, yeah. 50, it's hundred, hundred. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's not. It yeah. can't be half this, half that. It's it's equal. It's both and. You know, yeah, hundred hundred. It's a navigation. I think it's a navigation. Um, it, it's you. You've got a whole set of different impulses that are kind of worked through here, and uh, you've got to keep them all involved. And you know, the bottom line is that you you'll get horribly lost as you're navigating if you don't hold on to that thing that we started with with all your might and main, which is this principle that God has revealed God's self definitively through Jesus Christ. 
through the spirit. And as soon as you get that, because it's got you, um, all the other stuff will follow and you have a you have a wealth of ethical and missional information right there. This is a God who's radically relational, who relates in a certain way, who isn't quite so worried about the forms and structures through which you relate, how you're relating. Um, and this is the information that you need to navigate these, these, these differences. If you let go of Jesus, you will get lost. You, you will start to crush people with your own culture. You will endorse piece, pieces of culture that God is not endorsing. You will just lose your way. Well, you know, you're a Pauline scholar. Now, it seems to me if for most academics, like if you're especially is like Proust or Mary Shelley or Schopenhauer, <laughs> most of the population doesn't have a preconceived notion of your study. Right. But everybody, everybody think, you know, people say that people go to seminary to, to learn Greek and Hebrew and teach theology. I mean, doesn't ever I, I, do you have wind up with a professional sort of hazard of just everybody thinks they know your subject matter like like everybody thinks they know what the apostle paul said thought taught right everybody at least in 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 religious in christian circles that that seems to be the case there's a bit of that but you know i find the students at at duke very teachable um that i don't yeah this will sound probably unutterably pretentious but it doesn't take very long for them to work out that there's a lot that they still need to learn about paul um, which I think is good. There's a lot I still need to learn about Paul. He's a very, very complex, brilliant person. The the prejudicial problem which you've named, I think, is very real. But it's in very it's very real in secular circles. When I'm hanging out with humanities people, um, just outside the church, there, there are these these powerful prejudicial barriers. Um, what are those conversations like, like with humanities colleagues at Duke that are not religious? I mean, what are you, you guys are faculty cocktail parties. I mean, how is it, what is that like? And, uh, you know, how, how are your conversations? Depends. Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> uh, because they've got them in the they've got them in the conservative box. So it depends who I'm hanging out with, how I play this. I try and contextualize. But say I'm at the National Humanities Center, which tends to be sort of progressive, democratic place. Uh, when I introduce my 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 subject matter as as Paul, what I say is, you know, there's kind of a Republican reading of Paul, and then there's a Democrat reading of Paul, and the Republican reading of Paul is kind of dominant. And I spend a lot of time deconstructing that and showing how Paul was really a Democrat. And they go, <laughs> "Oh, what a great guy! Yeah, tell me more." Now, it's not entirely fair to Republicans or Democrats, but it, it makes sense. It gets me past being shut down. <laughs> You could go all out and say he's really with Jill Stein. <laughs> yeah, right. well, Bernie, Bernie Ricks. Paul Bernie. would br- Paul would bring his own bags to Whole Foods. <laughs> there you go. It's the Bernie of his day. You, towards the end of the book, you talk about universalism and how this is sort of an uh, an enduring issue for for reading Paul, and and that right. there's this kind of much like Karl Barth, right? I mean, who said, "I'm not a universalist," uh, you know. That would be to sort of, you know, speak where we shouldn't right. speak. But but Bart's hope yes. certainly goes in that direction. His his yeah. tenor goes. I mean that 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 one that one part in in uh, in Second Corinthians right where Paul says, "I've become all things to all people that by all means I might win." You want him to say all, but he says some. You know, like you're waiting mm. for that all, like yeah. because the thrust of it seems to be that somehow that every. Yeah. There's not, yeah. You know, there's going to be no more crying, no more dying, right. and that right. no no sheep will be lost, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, that makes you very popular, I guess, in conservative evangelical circles. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, 
Um, well, there's a theological issue here that uh, came into clarity for me as I was writing the book, and it's a very, very important one. And it's one that Paul himself partly recognizes. Um, it's uh, The technical term for it is functional. You want to avoid functional Marcionism, which is what people pushing back on universalism tend not to do. They tend to they would hate me saying this, but it's true. They're basically functionally Marcionite because Marcion reduced the God of Jesus Christ to kind of a small zone of redemption, and he put creation under the control of another God. Now, if Jesus reveals to us a God who loves us so much that he dies a painful death for us and is resurrected to save us, if that's who God is through Christ, and then you don't apply that in some sense to everybody, what you're saying is that Jesus is not God of that reality that it is not applied to. There's a zone that Jesus doesn't cover, or you're saying God acting through Christ, somehow, you know, the plan didn't really work. This is God's personal intervention into our situation, and something goes wrong. It doesn't really work out. So there is a universalist push that's kind of right and true. Is God the Lord? Is Jesus the Lord? Which means, is he the Lord of everything? Which means that the spheres of creation and redemption must be held exactly together. Now, but didn't want to take away from God God's right to say, you know, this isn't working out. Um, you're going to, there is a rejection here that is going to be enduring. God's allowed to do that. And I totally agree with Bart. But the starting point for that, I think, our knowledge of God is that God loves and saves everybody. And then that's where we start. Is Jesus Lord or not? Is he the Lord of love or not? And I don't want to deny that or qualify that in any way. So, so, uh, you're, so, you're, think, so you're saying that the idea of is hell popular, we should start with it as an impossible possibility rather than as a given that it's populated. Yes, yes exactly. Exactly. You've got to come at this from the wrong, from the right end <laughs> and then think it through. And that's where Paul, at his best moments, when he's really being Christologically aggressive, that's exactly where he is. Um, very important passage, Romans 5, 15 following, where he wants to compare Adam and Christ. He wants to compare these kind of two humanities with these two universal figures. But before he can go to a parallelism, which starts around about verse 18, he's got to establish the massive asymmetry between them. What Christ is, how much more? has God done for us in Christ than what happened in Adam? Yeah. How much bigger and better is what happens in Christ? Who's really running things, Adam or Christ? Christ, Christ. In the book, you have Christ in like 50-point font. Yeah, that's with a, right. With a greater than and this really tiny Adam. It's a very yeah, good visual depiction go. of what you just said. Go. Which is true, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, my a friend, and who's been a teacher to me, a guy named Paul Zoll, uh, wrote a book called Grace and yeah, Practice. Yeah, I, mm. I, I Paul's a great guy. I, I, I really lovely. He is a lovely man. In that book, he says that, you know, he was trying to come up with language for explaining the old, old message today. And he said, you know, mm -hmm. when he talks about grace, he, he talks about one way love, that a love that's unconditional, unilateral. Right, right. And, you know, he said there's a monergism of mercy at the heart of this thing. Right. And, and, and he says that's something that I, I think people connect with it, it, more than old school religious kind of terms. Are, totally. are, are there ter other things that in your study of Paul that as we inhabit at least in parts of the country definitely mm. a sort of post-christian culture are there ways of talking about the old old story that you find in these pauline documents 
that that have come to you or that you know through your conversation with students yeah. and you are, yeah. are there things words phrases ideas that jump out at you as as ways that are jumping points to translate the radicality of this unconditional interruptive love that is at the yeah. heart of Paul's message great question great question I find that um, talking about parenting almost always strikes a chord. Now, you have to have a caveat because some people have had horribly abusive and painful relationships with their parents. But even people who've gone through that sort of pain and trauma understand what parenting should really be like, and they understand what sort of parents they want to be. And so I I say to my people, you know, I've got two kids. Uh, Let's call them Grace and Emil. And I am their parent parent. I'm their father. I will never, ever not be their father. It does not matter what they do. My identity as their father can never be erased. Now, there are times when I wish that it was. (laughs) (laughs) There are probably times when they wish that it was. But that is irrevocable. That's permanent. And that's the way it should be. I will always love them. I will always be there for them. I will always be committed to them, no matter what they do. And multiply that by 10 and then by a factor of 10, and that's God's relationship to us. That's beautiful. Douglas, thanks for writing this book. And I, I mean, I, I do mean it. I think as someone who spent some time reading around the New Testament, I mean, I, I really found it making me want to reread all of Paul's letters. Oh, I mean, thank you. You, you, mm. you. It's so, I think for somebody that's uninitiated in, in you know, the life and teaching of Paul, or for someone that is looking for a, a good set of lenses to bring it all together, I, they're, mm. you know, mm. they could, there's no better place to start. I like the book a lot, Paul, An Apostle's Journey. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Douglas for coming on the podcast, and please do check out his book, Paul, An Apostle's Journey. And thanks to you once again for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.